0: in a scientific society. We have put our trust in scientists and other experts and devalued the advice of other wise people in our lives. The scientific worldview that we have adopted leads us to view the world and people around us in instrumental terms, and we have come to treat people as things. Our scientific society has alienated us from our own human natures and leads us to dehumanize others. Proponents of science celebrate its supposed objectivity and neutrality, but really this just masks science's attachment to Eurocentric and patriarchal values. In the end, our embrace of science has corrupted our culture and our very selves. But is anything I just said true? And how would we know if it is? In Science Under Fire, Challenges to Scientific Authority in Modern America, the historian Andrew Jewett examines ideas like the ones I just listed and how they developed over the course of the 20th century. His story highlights how a whole variety of thinkers began reacting to and rejecting scientific ideals that emerged in the earliest decades of that century. Perhaps what is most interesting about his account is how criticisms that science was corrupting our values arose from nearly every quarter of American culture, from the religious and the secular, from the left and the right, from humanities professors to politicians to about any kind of public intellectual or thinker or talker that you can possibly imagine. I think Andy's history is really fascinating and I think so far it has been underappreciated. Few books I've read in the past few years have so changed the way I look at things around me, including how I see arguments about science and expertise, even how I read things in the news. Now, in later episodes, we're going to have guests on who make exactly these kinds of criticisms of science and technology. But I think one really neat thing about Andy's book, which, by the way, is primarily focused on interpreting and understanding where critics of science are coming from, is the way he gently prods the very assumptions that undergird criticisms of this sort. First and foremost, he doesn't think that in any meaningful sense, we live in a scientific culture, and we might put that in quotation marks. But second, and importantly, I think, he demonstrates the way that criticisms of and debates around science and technology get lodged at the level of vague and unhelpful generalizations around terms like science, scientism, technology, rationalism, the Enlightenment, the humanities, humanism, religion, faith, irrationality, the West, modernity, and the list goes on. He suggests that we leave these generalities behind and come back to the ground of specific examples, which if we examine them one by one, we'll find that they contain more differences than similarities. Do we live in any real sense in a scientific culture? We might ask this question especially at this very moment, when nearly 45% of Americans are unvaccinated and are apparently rejecting ever getting a vaccine. I hope you enjoy this interview with Andy Jewett about his new book, Science Under Fire. I know I enjoyed doing it. Get excited. Andy, thanks so much for coming on to talk to me today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Science Under Fire is a really deep book about how people in the US have become skeptical about scientific authority since the early 20th century. Mm-hmm. So how did you come to write this book?
1: Well, I started graduate school during the science wars of the 1990s when there was you know all sorts of polemics on uh, many different sides about the meaning of science and our culture. and. Uh, really struck me at the time that both of the sides in those conflicts, which, you know, had a lot to do with whether science was socially constructed and what that meant about our society. um, We're taking for granted certain kinds of assumptions about the meaning of science and about its relation to our culture. Uh, One being that science was this kind of rigidly, you know, rigorously value neutral form of knowledge and then the other that it served as a kind of cultural keynote uh, to the modern world, in a sense, right, that in some way that all of the things we see around us kind of hang on science in some sense. Um, And I was skeptical in certain ways about both of those uh, assumptions. Um, And so I've written now two books that uh, sort of interrogate those and try to sort of get a more complicated picture of how folks have thought about science. Uh, you know, mainly in the 20th century United States. And the first book, uh, as you know, focuses more on this sort of assertion of value neutrality. And this newer book is more about uh, these claims about science being the source of our culture, in a sense, right? And so what I'm tracking really is the history of the idea that we live in a scientific culture you know, Mm -hmm. particularly in the United States, but sort of in the modern world generally. Sometimes this is associated with the concept of modernity, sometimes it's not. Um, But I argued that in the 1920s, there's a shift from, you know, some folks arguing that science would be a dangerous cultural guide, to arguing that it is in fact here, it is in fact setting the tone for our daily lives, it has determined Mm -hmm. how we think about ourselves and others. And so it's this intersection of science and conceptions of human behavior uh
0: that interests me the most Hmm. I thought it might be uh help listeners to have a really concrete example of the kinds of debates yeah. that pop up right so I mean you talked about the science wars that's one place we could go but in your conclusion you discuss a graduation speech that the writer and editor Leon Wieseltier gave mm-hmm. at Brandeis in 2013 yeah he said among other things that society had come to be dominated by instrumental reason, Mm -hmm. including the twin imperialisms of science and technology. Right. And then the psychologist Steven Pinker replied that, you know, only through science could we come to know ourselves and all Mm -hmm. these things. So Mm -hmm. you want to say a bit about that case and how you see it kind of pulling out some of the big the themes of your book?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a case where Wieseltier presents, he says, you humanity students are the resistance, right? I mean, in some way, dividing the world up into these sort of disciplinary terms, in a sense. Uh, and I think that's a very characteristic kind of argument that comes out of the 20th century. It uh, has a lot to do with struggles around how education is going to be oriented, how professional authority is going to be divided up. Um, and those are characteristically broad sweeping kinds of claims there have been other versions of this sort of critique that have been more uh specific and more particular uh but but this is actually the style that's most common in the middle of the 20th century uh, these sort of and and to some extent becomes increasingly common again in the era of the science wars we get these bigger and bigger kinds of histories of the modern world that are predicated on uh the Assertion that certain sources of authority have sort of come to dominate. Um, So this this is very much continuous with what you see in the 1950s, for example. I suggest Mm -hmm. that there's a kind of uh, national reckoning with the cultural meanings of science in the wake of World War II. We see it as a golden age of American science with the nuclear physicists and so forth and all the scientists and the advertisements. Um, But there's a tremendous undercurrent of anxiety, too, about what science is doing to our self-understanding. And you yeah. see that very much coming out in this uh, tussle between Wieseltier and, and Pinker, uh, you know, saying that w- we must follow this sort of style of intellectual work in order to yeah. be able to sustain human relations, really. And otherwise, the social order, our world as we know it, will fall apart.
0: Yeah. And you you see counterparts to the Pinker response. I mean, if anything, Pinker's doubled yeah. down and tripled down on this argument since of then, course, right?
1: yeah, over the years. Yeah, and that's not something I track in, with any consistency through the book, except insofar as I suggest that some of the most extravagant claims on behalf of scientific authority have been fodder for the critics. So I talk mm-hmm. to some extent about... Um, about B.F. Skinner, for example, in, the, in his, you know, novel Walden Two, and then some of his subsequent debates with Carl Rogers and people like that. But uh, just like John Dewey in an earlier age, Skinner becomes this kind of perceived avatar of a scientific culture. I mean, he yeah. if you look at him on the sort of spectrum of what scientific thinkers believe about the world he's fairly extreme um but he comes that that comes to be taken as uh the kind of deep inner meaning of what a scientific culture would look like is this mm-hmm. you know world beyond freedom and dignity as he later titles a book right a world in which there really is no free will everything is conditioned you know uh and so there's this uh you know brave new world is another kind of hit point aldous huxley's earlier novel is constantly under discussion in the post-war period as it is again today Um, but these become these sort of nightmare visions of what a scientific culture might look like if it's sort of taken to its fullest Um, Mm -hmm. and so you know again I'm not tracking the arguments on the sort of pinker side as much Mm -hmm. Um, but they do come into the story on occasion as you know as grist for this kind of mill
0: yeah I was struck, you know, I think the the first chapter on, like, the 20s mm-hmm. um, and the early part of the 20th century, there's a lot of optimism there that kind of, uh, yeah. right? Um, yeah. And I just wonder, you know, where do you think that, that optimism came? And John Dewey is an important character in the story, I think, is a nice yeah. kind of symbol of that optimism of that time.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I discuss in that chapter in the 20s a number of versions of what I call a program of mental modernization, uh, and that's just, you know, riffing on the concept of modernity itself. But a number of kinds of cultural programs that, again, uh, you know, as with Skinner after World War II, in the 20s, these were the kinds of nightmare visions that people seized upon and as uh, thinking about what a scientific culture uh, was going to look like. Um, and there are a number of different versions. There's one associated with Bertrand Russell that has to do with a kind of uh, existential, and in a sense, kind of understanding of the universe as... Uh, sort of impervious to human meanings, that we have free will, we can act as we choose, but that uh, there's no cosmic support for any of our values whatsoever and so bertrand russell you know as also a notorious atheist uh right. is you know a, one of these sort of flashpoints around which this controversy revolves i talk about john b watson's behaviorism and his you know at least operational denial of concepts like soul and mind and again this assertion of conditioning as the source of human behavior i talk about how many folks saw parallels between watson and freud there's of course a huge vogue of freudianism it's not clear how deep necessarily, but it's sort yeah. of all over the place in 1920s popular culture. And again, often seen by critics as this view that reduces our supposedly rational and moral behavior to some kind of, you know, subterranean instinct, some sort of quasi-material force or something like that. And then there's Dewey, and I and I point out there that Dewey's program is specifically designed to attack what he sees as weaknesses in these other cultural renderings of what science means he's specifically insisting on the you know not only the reality of free will but the reality of human purposes the reality of values as guides to action all of these things embedding them in the natural world Um, but because of that naturalistic bent because he says there is no supernatural realm Uh, Critics are constantly sort of collapsing his theory into these others, suggesting that he, too, is saying we're just mere machines or animals. And, of course, he is uh, a kind of arch-secularist in his day, and arguably a liberal Protestant in other ways, or a a humanist. Um, And his influence on education is an important part of structuring those views of him as this great cultural danger. Uh, But, yeah, there's a tremendous amount of optimism behind all of these programs in the 1920s and the critics on the other side you know who are the main focus of the book come in and say well this you know, this shows us that a scientific culture has emerged, right, that right. they start drawing lines between the writings of a Freud or a Watson or a Dewey or a Russell um, to changes in ed- uh, education, to changes in consumption patterns, the sort of rise of con- con- sort of middle-class consumerism, suburbanization, the kind of keeping up with the Joneses mentality. Uh, they sort of draw some lines there and say that this is, you know, this is the result of a scientific way of thinking about ourselves and others about human behavior.
0: Mm-hmm um i think the middle chapters of your book just do such a wonderful job showing how the critique of science comes from all these different constituencies right yeah um and these kind of different groups rise up to criticize science for often like different and and maybe even incompatible reasons for a lot of times right yeah so what are some of the groups that you see as really important uh in this story and and what flaws did they see in scientific culture
1: yeah, I argue there that you can you can really find this kind of critique in the middle decades of the 20th century coming from just about everywhere. If yeah. you imagine a political spectrum, if you imagine a theological spectrum, you can find people with just about every set of commitments making an argument like this. And they often sound remarkably similar, as you can see from reading through the book, because they operate at such a high level of generality, Yeah, uh, saying that you know science has sort of destroyed our conventional self-understanding. It's a kind of... Uh, you know uh, a sort of jeremiah in a sense right as there was a moment before when we really understood ourselves or there was a very long era you know going back in history when we really understood ourselves and now science has come in and and sort of ruined that self-understanding and we need to go back to what came before and then there are just a whole bunch of different programs slotted in as to what came before right what was it that sustained our view of ourselves as moral actors as having free will these are the, some of the biggest themes in the middle of the 20th century as a, you know uh, uh, not just um, material to be manipulated by totalitarians or by social engineers right um mm-hmm. and so you see that among religious leaders of all different kinds you know and I'm, and I'm specifically trying to sort of broaden the horizon beyond the sort of usual circle of conservative evangelicals fundamentalists yeah. pentecostals and so forth and I try to say, you see this throughout the kind of liberal Protestant establishment. You see it among, you know, uh, capital C, conservative Jews, you know, Jewish leaders. You see it, uh, you see it among many Catholic leaders. Uh, you see it among people we consider religious modernists. Even You know, even back in the 1920s, a religious modernist like Shaler Matthews is criticizing this kind of scientific uh, view of the world. Yeah. So religious leaders of all stripes, I talk about... Um, professional sort of academic humanities scholars uh, of many different kinds, a little more divided, but you see a lot of folks arguing that the humanities are what upholds a yeah. sort of traditional understanding of the human person as a moral actor. Uh, political conservatives, I spend a, a good de- yep. deal of time on all of the different varieties of conservatism that constitute the new right in the 1950s as folks like William F. Buckley and Russell Kirk are sort of rehabilitating conservatism. Uh, This strand of criticism of the modern social sciences and social engineering gets wrapped up with the New Deal Uh, in the minds of virtually all different kinds of conservatives Mm -hmm. uh, is an important part of the glue that sort of holds the inversion and conservative movement together alongside anti-communism and this sort of you know more conventionally political critique of the new deal Mm -hmm. Uh, you know I talk about mainstream liberals I talk about uh, sort of dissidents within the social sciences themselves who often start to resist the label social science and want to call themselves a kind of humanists like the yeah. uh you know the anthropologist alfred Kroeber is one who says you know i'm not a social scientist right or later on someone like a c Wright mills a kind of conduit for these arguments into the new left um saying that you know there's you know sort of disavowing the idea that there should be a kind of social or there could be a kind of social science uh you see it among certain kinds of political radicals this is you know more a later story and then so far as the it's you know more the activists and counterculturalists of the 60s who tend to reject the kind of science-oriented modes of progressivism and radicalism but you see it among someone like a Dwight MacDonald uh, in the late 40s and, and early 1950s arguing that that kind of scientific bent of modern thought has you know ruined the ruined radicalism too mm-hmm. so you see it coming from all over the place.
0: Yeah, I thought you did a nice job with identity, too, of bringing in black leaders and and feminists. So, like, Mm -hmm. you know, what if we look to black leaders, for instance, what kind of critiques do you see?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's I suggest at the beginning that this is uh, in some ways a more dominant theme among white thinkers uh, than it is among, you know, folks in other groups, partly because... You know, some of the struggle for black Americans, for example, is to just try to get into the mainstream, right, is to yeah. try to get access to this growing authority of science in various ways, partly just by gaining jobs and in, into the scientific mm-hmm. community, partly by drawing on it as well. There's, of course, a strong undercurrent um you know, in in the black churches of, uh, you know, a kind of critique of secularism and a critique of scientific materialism. Mm -hmm. There's skepticism around certain kinds of policies, and you can see this coming out again today and, uh, you know, the Part of the story is that people in you know the black community are not getting vaccines as often, but there's also more right. hesitancy there than you see elsewhere, and there's a obviously a very very long history of experimentation in medicine that's uh, you know very front and center in the minds of many people. Um, the abuse of evolutionary rhetoric to talk about higher and lower races is on the minds of a yeah. lot of black leaders, so that's one way in which it comes in. So you know that there's a sense in which it is. First and foremost, a kind of mainstream white story, right? I'm looking mm-hmm. at the kind of post war establishment and its various sort of dimensions um, and suggesting, well, that you know, there's an enormous amount of this kind of criticism there as well. Now, later on, this becomes a much more complex story by the 1970s, right? Because virtually all of the critiques, like maybe McDonald and a few others, Uh, before the 1960s are saying, well, science has destroyed our traditional self-understanding. By the time you get into the late 60s and 70s, you get various sorts of marginalized groups saying, well, science is actually upholding traditional views, racist views, patriarchal views, right, right, that actually need to be changed. So what's pseudoscientific is actually the conventional understanding of human behavior, uh, and that's what science has sort of imprinted on our culture, is something mm-hmm. old and bad that we need to get rid of. So the the critique, it's kind of flipped around in a sense, but it's still predicated on this sense that science is dictating what, how we think about ourselves.
0: Yeah. You know, this story um, is about science, but it's also very much about the role of technology in our culture. And yeah, I think in part because... Theme. Um, in part because people saw, it, you know, technology as applied science. I, I yeah, think. Yeah, sure. But uh, there's lots of worries about technological change throughout the book. So, how did mm-hmm. you see kind of technology coming out in this story? Like, where do you think that comes from? When?
1: Yeah, well, I think one of the things you th- see throughout these arguments is a, you know, a kind of lumping tendency to sort of s- stick things together, right? So. Uh, it's why you know people jump back and forth between what we would consider scientific phenomena and technological phenomena right the concept of the machine is is a metaphor a big metaphor in the 1920s uh both for those who are enthusiastic about social changes and those who are, are concerned about them but the machine is a kind of symbol for both actual machines but also mechanistic ways of thinking about human persons right and so you constantly get you know even in the index and categories for people as machines things like that right you see this style of criticism over and over again that we've been reduced to animals Mm. we've been reduced to machines and there you know many of these critiques are not particularly um systematic yeah and so there's enormous amount of kind of muddling and confusion about the actual means by which science or, or technology is causing cultural change but you do see them routinely associated with one another technology becomes a more prominent theme again i think in the 1960s with the left critique although there you know it has a presence earlier on uh, you know obviously the nuclear bomb is a, is looming over a lot of this conversation yeah. uh, in the late 40s and 50s although uh, Surprisingly often, the argument is that well, the bomb isn't the problem the the problem is our self understanding that leads us to use the bomb or have developed right. the bomb or not be able to handle the bomb uh, that the real problem is our sort of moral self destruction mm-hmm. uh, so technology is, is comes in constantly throughout the book um, and i I don't sort of sit down and differentiate those critiques I would say all that much. Um, but I do suggest in the introduction, and this, um, one of the, this is one of the main features of this discourse is a constant conflation of science with technology um, yeah. in terms of how they shape our lives. Sometimes you'll see a critic who suggests that technology is the main vector through which yeah. a kind of mechanistic view has shaped us. And you see that sometimes in the 20s, you see it sometimes in the 70s or beyond. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Usually, they're conflated in the middle decades of the 20th century.
0: Like five or six years ago, I taught a course on like the history of technology, criticisms of technology and yeah. industry. Yeah. And I really started that course with like romantic poets, actually, where you see mm-hmm. a lot of this stuff. Yep. I mean, do you, th- do you think that this critique of science goes back to kind of older romantic traditions? Do you see that thread playing out?
1: I think it does. I mean, I think there's obviously a very important prehistory and European thought for all of these sorts of arguments, uh, both in the a kind of romantic vein and in a kind of harsher, anti-modern, sort of anti-liberal mm-hmm. vein, uh, moving toward the later 19th century and into the 20th. I think in some ways the, the wheel is reinvented in the mm-hmm. United States. I mean, these people are not always consciously drawing on a Coleridge or something like that. Yeah. Um, but they are often defending, you know, certain kinds, you know, similar sorts of alternatives in terms of structures of cultural authority um, to some of those earlier folks. I mean, by European standards, the critiques in this country are fairly moderate. You know, not a lot of people rejecting (laughs) democracy, not a lot of people rejecting industry as such. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, you start to get some of that in the sixties and seventies. Typically they, the assumption that some new or, you know, some refurbished, I'd say, way of thinking is just going to solve the problem, right? If we just listen to mm-hmm. the poets, or if we just listen to the novelists, or if we just listen to the uh, ministers, or, you know, that that's more or less the extent of the problem, is that, it, and mm-hmm. that's partly why it's such a, a kind of mainstream, and in fact, kind of almost professional discourse, is, is that it is, the stakes are in some ways the highest for those who represent some of these other sources of authority who are, you know, professional humanities scholars speaking for novelists or political theorists, for example, you know, a Mm -hmm. huge presence in this conversation, uh, who, you know, are voicing these older traditions of thinking that they believe are going to, you know, essentially solve the problem by sort of rehabilitating an older sense of human behavior or installing a new one later in the 20th century.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. I think a really important lesson of the book is that this critique, as you've already said, it comes from both the left and the right. Absolutely. Um, so, why do you think it's such a bipartisan phenomenon? Um, and I guess as a follow-up question, like, do you, do you, do the liberals and conservatives differ in the critiques they make, or or is there a lot of similarity there? Mm-hmm.
1: There's a lot of similarity through up through the 1960s, I would say. Um, in that, you know, the critiques remain at this very, very high level of generality. They're very rarely attached to specific political programs, except Mm -hmm. by this new right, you know, which has a kind of oppositional vision and a few politicians that it's rallying around, like Robert Taft and folks like that. Um, But even there, it's it's a very, very broad kind of critique. And, you know, on the other side, uh, it's remarkable how many supporters of you know, something like the welfare states are still extremely critical of the uh, what we would think of as some of the assumptions on which it's based. Yeah. That social sciences can know something about the human person. Uh, I mean, these aren't necessarily the reasons why we ended up getting these policies in, during the New Deal, but they are widely seen in U.S. political culture as bearing some relation to the authority of the social sciences. Um, so there's actually remarkable similarities. Uh, between the arguments of, you know, folks quite far over on the right and an establishment figure like a Reinhold Niebuhr or, uh, you know, the historian Jacques Barzun in the middle of the 20th century uh, or someone quite far over to the left like Dwight MacDonald. Now they, they tend to take on much more politically specific forms by the 60s and 70s, when yeah. they're much much more closely tied to electoral politics, mm-hmm. more closely tied to certain kinds of single-issue social movements about the placement of nuclear facilities, for example, they mm-hmm. sort of get a little closer to the ground um, during that period, although the, you know, much broader versions emerge again around kind of post-structuralist thought and sort of the post-late uh, 20th century critiques of modernity. Yeah. Um, but so, yeah, I mean, one of the points of the book and one of the reasons why I originally conceived of writing it was how similar the critique often ends up looking across huge swaths of terrain politically, religiously. If you think of it in its simplest form as, you know, science has shaped our culture, science has sort of ruined our self-understanding, we need to recover or replace it with
0: X, right? Yeah. You
1: can fill in that X with so many different things. Right,
0: right. <laughs> I thought you did a really nice job um, dealing with this kind of mirroring of the the right and left from the 70s on, too, because I think that's such a, including in our social circles, that's such a fraught issue. It is. Yeah. I I don't know if you saw like last year, I think it was last year that Philip Murowski, the kind of historian of economic thought, had this essay where he was talking about science and technology studies and it's kind of doubts about democracy and expertise and linking Mm -hmm. it to kind of neoliberal conservative Mm -hmm. thinking and saying trying to show that they're kind of like twins in a way, you know, that Mm -hmm. they're they have deep interconnections. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, of course, created a lot of defensiveness within the SDS community, of course. Um, But I thought you did a really nice kind of job showing that there are there are similarities, but it doesn't mean like they're coming from the same political place, necessarily. No, no, not
1: at all. Not that they are in some ways reducible to one another, um, but that they're fungible, right? That they can be picked up and, and used for a lot of different kinds of purposes. Yeah. Um, and that was one of the one of the main reasons I initially took up this study. Uh, I was originally planning to organize it around groups of political critics of kind of establishment liberalism, sort of welfare state liberalism. Yeah. And show that basically each group in turn, as they develop over the decades, right, the new right, the new left, communitarians, right, mm-hmm. you know, and, and on and on, uh, each group has more or less picked up uh, this kind of critique of the social sciences as the basis for... A kind of political organization right Mm -hmm. and seeing how this has circulated and been modified over and over again to all of these different purposes still remains a sort of important task of the book i would say is that um, showing this is a line of continuity for example you know there are many others but this is an important one i think we haven't explored as much between um you know, someone like Reinhold Niebuhr in the middle of the 20th century and the New Left, who, you know, were ferociously critical of most things that he stood for, Mm -hmm. uh, that that generation inherited a certain set of assumptions about what science was and what science was doing, that they turned to very different purposes. But the the language often sounds remarkably similar.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I also thought you did a nice job of kind of showing... um, I mean, part of it's the new right, like the crystal types, you know, the people who start off as Democrats Irving, and crystal. then, yeah, right. yeah. yeah. Uh, and make the switch to a kind of conservatism during the 60s yeah. and earlier. I mean, and you even have like Daniel Patrick Moynihan making a similar kind of trajectory as a Democrat, having like real doubts about the great society yeah. um, and social engineering through welfare uh, policies. Uh, But then you have the the hippies at the same moment kind of also having real doubts about the authority of the state. Absolutely. um, You know, like, is is it a coincidence that this is both happening at the same time amongst kind of different different left-right political groups? Or do you really think there's just something broader in the air during that Uh, time?
1: No, I don't think it's entirely coincidence. I think there are a number of different factors there. One of the things I try to draw in the book, and I don't want to make make the argument too reductive, but it is, you know, frequently the case that you can find the folks making this argument have a professional investment in some alternative structure of cultural authority, right? And so there are, you know, real important factors that have to do with just professional interests here, Mm -hmm. the interests of a humanities scholar, you know, um, not always, but, but often. And so that's one dimension, is that there are a lot of folks who have you know, investments at any given time and other ways of thinking professionally. Yeah. I think another is that there is a kind of crisis of the American welfare state in the 1960s, right? I mean, there's a, a series of arguments about uh, the Great Society, especially as Johnson is trying to sort of expand various sorts of policies. You see it, you know, among... Uh, black nationalists you see it all over the place right this sense that something is wrong with a society that tries to use these bureaucratic mechanisms to solve what are essentially moral problems right and so that's uh you know i think a a central factor in the 60s and 70s and then some of it is this sort of just the fungibility of this kind of argument which means it ends up almost everywhere uh i mean you mentioned the sort of group of folks who come to be called neoconservatives, and they have a really interesting role in a sense. I mean, when I thought about writing the book in terms of chapters by group, that actually would have been one of the hardest chapters as I started researching it, because they're in a sense so committed to scientific authority, to yeah, the social totally. sciences. I mean, yeah. so many of them come from within those disciplines, either teach them or teach them occasionally or are trained in them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the, the main leader who doesn't, Norman Pedoritz, actually virtually never says anything about science, surprisingly. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes another version of this kind of dissidence within the social science disciplines themselves in a sense of the misuse of scientific authority and the misuse of modern theories of behavior so it's a really a, a kind of fascinating nuance there yeah um but they also contribute some of the most powerful sorts of tropes right mm-hmm. uh, about this new class for example i mean you see new class rhetoric on the new left you see it versions of it among the what be called, called the paleoconservatives of the 50s. Um, but it's obviously these figures who, who sort of make the new class analysis front and center.
0: And give what's the, for people so, to know, what's the new class? Yeah,
1: the new class is, you know, roughly synonymous with a kind of professional managerial class, yeah. bringing down to earth this critique of scientific authority and suggesting that these are the people who have sort of spread this ideology throughout our society. And these are the people who have, you know, done it because they have a professional interest in sort of maintaining themselves as the kind of protectors of all, right? Mm -hmm. As the kind of instruments of this bureaucratic state, uh, as the educators, as the social scientists, as, you know, the various sorts of experts. And so they really bring that front and center into the conversation in a way that's Mm -hmm. picked up by, uh, communitarians and others. I mean, I show side by side, you know, people that we would call a communitarian or a neoconservative. I mean, again, there's a tremendous amount of, uh, yeah. elision between these, these positions.
0: When, when Ronald Reagan was doing radio slots in the 1970s, he often picked up on this rhetoric. Yeah, so, I mean, it? um, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those moments. I mean, when I like to teach students about the, um, I'm forgetting their journal, Public Interest. Uh, of yeah, these, the interest, new, right. just because I feel like it's really helpful for kind of seeing how left-right mm-hmm. lines get drawn. I mean, I really feel like our contemporary politics gets set yeah. in this moment in a lot of ways. So
1: yeah, that's right. I mean, that kind of convergence. You know, many of these folks still continue to think of themselves as being on the left throughout mm-hmm. their lives. Um, the convergence of their kinds of concerns, or folks that you know, we would want to call a communitarian like a Michael Novak or, you know, Christopher Lash, some of these figures in the 1970s that become celebrities in a sense, right? They bring all of these critiques so profoundly into the mainstream into the media discourse um into the you know obviously into the new think tanks right into all of these new forums and really define the language that you see you know across both parties by the 1990s certainly in that era of bill clinton right right all the assumptions that we're now sort of starting to unpack about the crime bills in that era and talking about that again with biden back in office Mm
0: mm-hmm yeah, and the dismantling of the welfare state. I mean, Absolutely. so many things, prison prison rules and such. Yes. Um, uh, you know, so you, re- you were working on this book late enough that you were able to get a mention of COVID into that the was, conclusion. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and the introduction there. And the introduction. <laughs> uh, I was reading, rereading the conclusion today, so that's why yeah. I, I was thinking about it. Um, yeah. So you know, how have you seen this kind of play out um, over the last year or so? I think it's I think there's a baseline of
1: distrust of scientific experts in the United States that bears the marks of this long tradition of argumentation about scientists having a kind of inhuman view of persons, right? Mm-hmm. Having a a sort of fundamentally skewed and dangerous sense of who we are as yeah. human beings. I think you see that behind you know, if we look at the sources of a kind of post-truth climate. Uh, I mean, many people will just look, you know, very recently and, you know, and talk about the Trump administration and talk yeah. perhaps about the Christian right. You know, others will widen the window a little bit and look at maybe the last 50 years and talk about uh, the counterculture and talk about, you know, post-modernism for those who dislike it. Yeah. Um, but I think he, all of those movements uh, have been shaped in a way by this deeper tradition of contending that scientists have, you know, bequeathed us this fundamentally inhuman way of thinking about human beings. Yeah. I think this, uh, you know, clearly you can see it's, I think clearest on the political left, you can see a very rapid sort of disillusionment with scientific thinking over the course of the 1960s and 1970s. But if you look at the beginning of the story, and I suggest this early on, you know, as of 1920, there are very, very few people who are just critical of science whole cloth in any of these kinds of sweeping ways. They might dislike Darwinism. They may have, you know, a concern here or a concern there. You know, but compare that to today when you get all of these sweeping statements about science, you know, you know that we need to resist it by picking up the humanities that sort of thing yeah uh you know these just huge generalizations about what science means at a time when i think we need to be much more specific and precise about what we're talking about if we have concerns about vaccination we should talk about vaccination we shouldn't talk about science or expertise or enlightenment or modernity right we need to talk about specific things going on the government telling you what to put in your body right that's a very fraught process and there's a lot to talk about there um but it doesn't we're not going to really get much of a handle on it by making these huge generalizations
0: yeah on the on the christian right i i remember some of the critiques of fauci war were, were when, when it was when he was basically you know people were banning church gatherings that right. there was a misunderstanding of human nature that even if there was a risk of those gatherings that that was absolutely essential to our nature as humans. To to, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was and there a are those within the churches pushing
1: back that says, you know, the Bible doesn't tell us we have to worship inside, for example, right? Right. Uh, but yeah, no, you see that very much. I mean, of course, a huge strand of this whole tradition of argumentation has to do with this sense of a perceived battle between, uh, you know, a fundamentally religious people and the kind of secular state that's keeping mm. them down, right? I mean, that's a very, very strong theme in this In, in this. Uh, tradition of argumentation, and that is, of course, the theme that the Christian right has developed uh, you know most systematically and most thoroughly, although you do see it in other places. Um, but yeah, that's that's certainly coming out there and in and, and the sense that behind it, Still, I think there's this, this sort of background sense that somehow scientists just really don't understand people, right? Right. They, they assist, yeah. they do, and, and somehow they force their views on all of us through means that remain fairly nebulous, right? Right. And of course, scientists don't think they have any purchase on public culture at all, right? They think yeah. nobody listens to them at all. Um, but this just sort of, you know, really kind of habitual sense that this is a scientific culture, of course. So what is the problem with it? And let's start from there and then figure out what is wrong with the way that scientists think and how that ramifies in various particular practical realms.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to talk to you more about this kind of generalities and abstractions. I really love that part of the book and what you've said so far. So from the conclusion, you, you, in the conclusion, you write, In our debates, massive abstractions still abound as commentators invoke the usual broad categories, science, scientism, rationalism, the Enlightenment, the humanities, humanism, religion, faith, irrationality, the West, modernity. Yet such large-scale abstractions have proven remarkably unhelpful in the controversies of our day. Mm -hmm. And I just, I think that's so true. Um, I don't want to get, like, overly uh, nerdy here, but I was thinking about uh, the uh philosopher wittgenstein uh in some of his notebooks he talks about the craving for generality Mm -hmm. that we have and you know i just was thinking you know this is a big theme of the book i think is that when we talk about these things we tend to talk in these very abstract terms yeah yeah so i mean where do you think that i mean have you thought about where that comes from and why that's the case
1: I think that relates to some extent to the, the, the kind of professional location and also the sort of personal psychology of many of the people that are offering these critiques. And this is partly why it's, a, it's an account that's in some ways anchored on the kind of community of professional intellectuals uh, is because I'm interested in the critiques that are offered at this level of generality in, in some ways above all, also because they have very loud voices and they've yeah. and, uh, shaped our views in important ways. Um, but I think, you know, those of us who take up the scholarly life are generally inclined to think in these fairly broad terms, right? And we're generally inclined, as I say, in the introduction to think that all of the stuff around us, right, all of the politics, all of the nitty gritty of daily life in some ways reflects some kind of philosophical foundation Mm -hmm. and that we could kind of get at it all, Together, if we attacked whatever that deep root was, yeah, I think this is a tendency uh, that I, you know, that is very, very common among um, academics, intellectuals of various kinds, is to a kind of philosophical reduction of the entire world to yeah. sort of competing systems of thought, which allows us to believe we have greater purchase on them than I believe we do.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I one of the things I like about your work going way back is is the all the different kind of subfields of history that you pull together. And, um, you know, I think you you come in part from a kind of intellectual history background. Yeah, it's my original
1: I, training. That's right.
0: And, uh, but yeah, I think you 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 have it because of the view you just outlined you have you have some real questions about how intellectual historians have traditionally talked to thought about. Absolutely, it. yeah, I think they're ideas. some of the worst
1: offenders in some ways of, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the, some of the leading proponents of this kind of philosophical reduction. Um, you know, and I, as, on the other hand, I'm certainly someone who wants to say that ideas and their makers are important in the world, yeah. but I think we need to be very clear on how they're important, mm-hmm. uh, and they're important insofar as these arguments get picked up and used for a whole bunch of different purposes, mm-hmm. you you know, Often, perhaps usually, for reasons and for interests that weren't theirs in the first place, right? I mean, I'm fascinated by misunderstanding, I guess I would say. And that's Mm -hmm. one of the reasons why these arguments at this level of generality, I think, can be so powerful, is that they can appeal to so many different people for so many different reasons. Uh, They become the source of a certain kind of consensus, that is very empty, in a sense, in terms yeah. of having specific content, but where everyone can just start by saying, oh, we live in a scientific culture. Okay, let's yeah. start, you know, let's figure out then then what to make of that and what that looks mm-hmm. like. And, and people fill it in with all sorts of their own content. Um, you know, I would just straight up reject that. I don't yeah. think we live in a scientific culture. Um, mm-hmm. But the fact that so many people not even argue it, but just take it for granted, Yeah, is a very powerful fact about our world, because that just wasn't true, in certainly in the United States, as of even 1920, I don't believe.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And they may have said a, a technical culture by then, right? They may have been thinking about electricity and that sort of thing. Uh, but even that sort of argument is, in some ways, a product of the 1920s, right? Earlier self-understandings of, you know, what is American culture had... Well, mostly been predicated on either politics. This is a you know democratic republic or or on yeah. Christianity.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Forgive me. I'm losing. I lost my train of thought for a second. Mm, there was course. something I wanted to ask you. Mm-hmm. Um, Generalities. Yeah. Um, will I get that one back? It'll come. Well, let me go to the next question I had for you that um, and uh, see if it comes back to me. I know they're related. So the, you know, what's the, in your view, I think you've already begun to talk about this with these kind of generalities, but what do you see as the best road forward? I mean, is it, it sounds like what you're saying is that we need to, if we're going to talk about vaccines, for instance, was the example used before, we should talk about vaccines because there's Mm -hmm. a huge number of deep and important questions there Absolutely. Um, about authority and about science and yeah. about certainty yeah. and about racism. I mean, there's so many things we can go into there. Yeah. So is the idea that we should focus more on the particular and, and avoid these kind of massive generalities?
1: I think that's usually pretty good advice in a lot mm-hmm. of different domains. I think I'm, I'm extremely wary of the way that language obscures content as well as reveals it. Uh, and I think that, uh, you know, if we talk, if we're talking about just about anything and we say the term liberalism, for example, I mean, I actually actively tried not to use that word in my first book, even though all the people in it would be considered liberals more or less. Uh, it, it means so many different things to so many different people that i don't think it's a very useful instrument for actually getting ideas across yeah And so i'm generally always a, an advocate of trying to take down that level of generality and to try to be a little more precise about what it is that we're talking about um and i think you know to me that the core message of you know, decades of scholarship on social construction and the way that social values and interests are intertwined with knowledge making and with technological innovation and that sort of thing is that they tend to be, you know, these processes tend not to sort of be big sweeping generalities. They tend to be very local, very messy, very complex, right? Very multi-sided. And that if we want to talk about vaccination, we need to talk about, you know, specific procedures, specific kinds of moments, um, that, you know, we might want to say, uh, you know, something broad about the fact that this technology or this, uh, you know, medical advance is shaped by values. But then we really need to dig in and see, because, you know, in each case, there are different sets of interests, different sets of groupings, literally yeah. different, different categories of people uh, that are affected by that particular innovation or by that particular theory, and I think we need to take those cases uh, on their own terms, and that's, I guess, frustrating as a scholarly agenda, right? That doesn't, you know, give us this great big purchase on large questions. But I think it's really crucial in order to, yeah. to actually have real purchase on them
0: mm-hmm. is to
1: say, well, the climate controversy is different from the vaccination controversy yeah. is different from any number of other things that we could we could be talking about. Right. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, vaccine hesitancy if 25 percent of frontline nurses and doctors or whatever the statistic is, don't want to get the vaccine. That's coming from a very different place than,
0: yeah. you
1: know, the QAnon person online. Right. Um, right yeah and we need to we need to understand all of those dynamics
0: yeah i mean as our as our role as teachers, I think that that's something we can do in the classroom too Absolutely. is try to bring bring people down to specifics as often as possible, right yeah yep yeah, I remember what I wanted to ask you. It's oh, kind of like skepticism about, you know, philo- philosophical foundationalism or however we want to think about that. Where do you, where mm-hmm. do you think that comes from in you? Is that just part of the Andy Jewett, like, instinct about the world, or do you think yeah. that's something you came to?
1: I don't know. I mean, I went through that, as I actually went through many of the positions that I discuss in my book. Yeah. Um, I mean, I came out of college with many of the commitments that I'm now sort of historicizing, I'd say. Uh, maybe went back into graduate school with many of them as well. Yeah. Uh, I guess, yeah, I don't know. I think that's just probably many years of observing the world. But I think, too, that it has been one of the lessons of scholarship in U.S. history, history science, STS, the fields I tend to follow, political theory most closely, and um, I have just found a sort of, uh, you know, fairly constant mismatch between the most sweeping generalizations offered in those fields, and not everyone writes like that, uh, and the kinds of questions that I think we need to be addressing in our lives, and I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm very much committed to making my scholarship speak in some way, at least through some sort of translation to our public concerns. Um, and there's a way in which this level of generality can allow us to sort of play with ideas in a way that's sort of relatively reality free yeah um, I don't you know it's something I'm still trying to figure out I would say I I don't believe ideas don't matter. I don't believe mm-hmm. systematic ideas don't matter. I wouldn't want to say that, but I'm much more likely to say that in conversations with other intellectual historians than I am to say that in conversations with uh, other U.S. historians, right? From right. I think ideas generally matter more than they uh, are given credit for. I think they matter. I guess I would argue ultimately that they matter differently. I think they mm-hmm. matter in these much more complex and and ambiguous ways that they get taken up by specific actors in specific contexts and they get put to specific purposes. Uh, And that's where a lot of the the really interesting stuff happens.
0: Yeah, that's great, man. I love that. Um, I don't like to ask people who have brand new books out like what they're working on next, but (laughs) um, especially during a pandemic when we're all dealing with childcare and such. But what are you thinking about, man?
1: Yeah, well, it's been like two months since the book came out. It's an eternity. And <laughs> then, of course, you know, months before that, when it was really finished. Um, actually, the, so I'm developing a, a whole bunch of new research on science and anti-racism, huh. mainly in the U.S., but hopefully with a transnational dimension as well. Um, you know, we have all this great work on how science has been used to uphold racial inequalities. Yeah. And uh, I'm interested in the other side of the story, to some extent. I mean, we still need to do a lot of more of that work but I'm really committed to the idea that science has changed the conditions of argumentation for everyone. Yeah. Um, As in this book, I'm, you know, arguing that scientists aren't the only ones who define public images of science. I also want to see how uh, those who were attacking these structures of uh, discrimination and so forth were mobilizing scientific resources as well. Yeah. So, you know, where is science in the, you know, classic phase of the civil rights movement? Mm -hmm. So, I have a, a you know sort of big project in mind there. The the piece I'm pulling out right now is a history of the environmental justice movement hmm. uh, as it's coming together, especially in the in the 1980s and 1990s, and looking at some of the interplay of movement activism and you know bureaucratic policy formation and some of the work that's being done in the universities and around concepts yeah. of justice and how those various streams sort of intertwined. Uh, in the environmental justice movement because if you just say the phrase environmental justice it it is so many different things it's a movement right. it's a policy rubric it's a concept um, and so I'm interested in seeing how and it also it's a place where many kinds of scientific work and in fact other kinds of academic work are also brought into the conversation there's of course the the natural sciences in relation to, right. you know, environmental science in general, but also the social scientists do an enormous, you know, an important amount of work by demonstrating the kind of, you know, fundamental bias and the siting of polluting facilities and so yeah. forth, right, and giving scientific credibility to that, you know, very obvious, but ultimately anecdotal, observation yeah. about where these things end up and then the humanities and political theory as mm-hmm. well right and the ways in which conversations about justice you know this is originally called environmental racism it's called environmental equity yeah and then that very you know in a very short amount of time shifts to environmental justice hmm. the name of the epa office has even changed right right around hmm. 90 what is it 1993 right after clinton i think enters office and so i'm interested in at that level and in, in sort of you know how is environmental justice as a rubric different from some of these other ways of describing the problem? It allows you to talk in a way that say environmental racism doesn't always about intergenerational justice yeah yeah you know, it allows you to talk about some of these uh, global dynamics, but justice you know has some weaknesses as a concept yeah. too in some of the same ways that equity does and that it has mm-hmm. to be filled with specific sorts of content. Uh, and so I want to see how those sort of come out on the ground as well.
0: I look forward to that, man. That sounds like a great project. Thanks. Uh, Andy, thanks for joining me today. Absolutely. It's great fun. I hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Peoples and things like most things in this world depends on the work of many people. I want to thank my brother, Jake Vinsel, for writing the music for the show. I want to thank my buddy, Juliana Castro, for designing the logos for the podcast. You can check out her work at julianacastro.co. Peoples and Things is a production of Virginia Tech Publishing and the University Libraries at Virginia Tech. Production activities are supported by the Athenaeum, a space in the library that acts as a hub for digital humanities, teaching, learning, and creation. Joe Ford is the Athenaeum Coordinator and Digital humanities Specialist at VT Libraries, and he serves as producer and sound engineer for the podcast. For information about other podcasts from Virginia Tech Publishing, visit publishing.vt.edu. I also want to thank you for listening. Thanks.